Well, let's come on in and find our seats. I was just commenting, I, I don't know what we did to, to get it, but I'd like, it's kind of nice having a prelude for Sunday school. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit to, who's, who illumines it for us, who guides us into all truth. Thank you that um, you have not left us to our own, our own devices, that you've given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. I pray that you would help us to, to see you as we, as we study this passage today, that, that we would see that you care about how things are done in your church. You care about how um, leaders are to lead. You, you care about um, people doing the same as how they speak. Uh, help us as we, as we fight uh, our own tendencies to, to be hypocritical, to say one thing and yet do another. And so help us to be able to identify uh, sin in our own lives today, that we may turn from it and that we may turn to you and serve you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. People often, uh, as they look at the pastorals, they see that there is a difference as to how uh, Paul writes to Titus and how Paul writes to Timothy. They're, they're not the same people. They're not in the same uh, position in life. They don't have necessarily the same exact backgrounds. They're certainly not placed in the same positions. They're not given the same assignments. And so um, Paul deals with them differently. We don't see necessarily uh, the... Uh, any prolonged evidence of nearness and dearness between Paul and Titus. There's, there is some, I don't think there's any question that Titus is near and dear to Paul. And yet, when, when, when we look at how um, Paul deals with them personally, we can see that Timothy is, is he's held close and today is, uh, it, it's, it's throughout both letters to Timothy, but we're really going to start to see that today. So far, uh, Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus is an established church, and it's having established church problems, things that start to happen in a church that's been around for a while, where you are perhaps... Um, the, the church is surviving beyond its original leadership. And so you're having to pass, so to speak, a generational torch uh, as that goes along. Um, Paul had previously, with the Ephesian elders, told them that the day is coming when the wolves are going to come and it's not going to be from outside. It's going to be from men among you. It's going to be from your own selves. And so you need to be on the watch. You need to be careful. You need to be attentive. And as, as we've gone through, um, we see things that, 
that Paul is instructing Timothy on because these are things that Timothy is very likely encountering. He's very likely encountering that they've got women in positions of leadership inside the church. Therefore, Paul's going to address that issue. He's going to take it head on. They're having issues with false teaching coming from leadership in the church. Here's how you deal with this. And here's, how, here's what you're looking for. Here's the, the, the spiritual characteristics that you're looking for in leadership, be that pastors, be that deacons, be that women who are assisting with the deacons. And so today, he's, he's going to take on two things. One, he's going to deal with the, an issue of turning away. In our text, it's going to be falling away, frankly, the term is more intentional than that. Apostasy is not accidental. And so he's gonna deal with, um, when, when this happens, if you find this, if you find that you are encountering this in your church, number one, don't be surprised. And number two, don't be timid. This is something that needs to be taken on and needs to be addressed directly. And then secondly, he's going to go into some fairly prolonged and personal instruction for Timothy. Here's how you do these things. Here, um, I can remember um, running into a, a concept. Uh, when, when one is given an assignment, the, the idea of Tell me what good looks like. What is it that you are wanting to happen? How is this that you want this to be done? So tell me what good looks like and then get out of my way and let me actually go through and, and do what it is that you're looking for. So one of the things that Paul is going to do for Timothy here is, he gonna is he's going to tell Timothy with detail, this is what good looks like. If you want to be a good minister, if you want to be a faithful minister, if you want, and actually the word that's going to be used is servant. If you want to be a good servant, then here's what a good servant looks like. And here's how you can go through and you can do that. So let's dive into our text. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God 
who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, since we live 2,000 years after this was written, Pert close, coming up. It seems a little unusual for us as we look at this and see that Paul is, is talking about even in his day, 2,000 years ago, that these are later times. Does that strike you as kind of unusual? You know, here he is. Um, there was a fellow here uh, for a long, long time who had a, a particular habit. You know, he was always doing this, looking up. Do you think Paul lived in a way where he was looking for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ imminently in his lifetime? Do you think Paul lived that way? Yes. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. So how is it that Paul could look at this and say, you know, this is something for in the later times in the first century, and now here we are in the 21st century, and we're still living in this with this idea that these are the later times. Do you personally have an expectation that Jesus could come back at any time? Do you live with that? Okay, I see a lot of you nodding up and down. Do you live with the expectation that it could happen? literally, at any point. Okay, again, I see a number of you nodding your heads up and down. Some of you probably need to go back and visit the coffee that's in the back. So why is it that Paul can look at this and say, the Spirit is saying that in the later times, we're going to have this, this turning away. How is it that Paul is looking at this and saying, these qualify the day that he lived in qualified as the later times, the last days. You'll see that comment by writers in the New Testament, right? John writes about, the Apostle John writes about how in the last days, 2,000 years ago, which is a lot longer than any of us, I don't care how old you are, have been around. What qualifies, what makes Paul's day and our day, what makes that the last times, the last days? Say it louder, I heard somebody whispering. Okay, we have the church age. What do you mean by that, Greg? Sure. Sure. 
Okay, so the, okay, so the point is, is that we're post the life of Christ. And so Jesus has come. He's been born of a virgin. He's lived under the law. He's, he's lived the perfect life, the sinless life, so that he's able to be our substitutionary atonement. His blood is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. He's endured the wrath of God. God has put his uh, stamp of approval on what Jesus did by raising him from the dead because death had no power over him. And he has taken Christ up into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of those things have now occurred. And so there's nothing on the salvation uh, calendar that further has to be done. Make that right? We're all on the same page with that, right? Okay. So the idea is, is that there's nothing, there's no, um, there's no event there's no, um, there's no change now that must take place before Jesus can return for his church. There's no tripwire. There's nothing where we could look back and where we can look back and say, okay, this must happen before. That's the whole idea of being imminent. Imminent is something where there's nothing that is preventing this from taking place other than it's not on God's timetable yet. Okay, does that make sense? So the idea is that's how Paul and the apostles and the early disciples and the early church could live with the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now he hadn't and he didn't back then. He may not in our lifetime, but we need to live with the expectation that that could happen. Um, how does it affect how we live if it's with the understanding that in two seconds before I finish this sentence, Jesus could come back for us? How do you live when all of a sudden it's the idea that um, somebody may be really watching me very closely, very soon. Jesus talked about, you know, uh, you don't know the hour, so therefore what had you better be doing? Be on the alert and be about your business. Don't, this isn't something, uh, somebody made a comment a while back, you, um, you know, you get the letter or the email now, I'm dating myself with, you would actually get a letter in the mail. Um, my 45th, I guess I am getting old, my 45th high school reunion is this year, is in 2022. Now, when you hear that, when oh, gee whiz, people are going to start getting together, there's, there's that thought that, well, gee, maybe I should actually be about getting busy doing something with my life so I have something to say when I go, right? I need six months so that I can actually try to make something out of my life. That's, that's kind of a silly way to live, right? So again, we ought not be doing that when it comes to how we live in preparation for when we're going to be facing Christ. 
not with this you know, thing, I better get everything done here at the end. I'm gonna have a crash course in godliness because I gotta make up for all years where I have not done that. And so that's the idea here of, of, the, of the later times. Now the interesting thing here is, does apostasy take God by surprise? No. Is apostasy a new thing in the first century? No. Give me an Old Testament example of apostasy. Oh, this is really stretching now. You're going to have to think hard here. Old Testament example of apostasy. Saul. King Saul. Great start. Not a great finish. The golden calf. So let me get this straight. Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the law written by the finger of God. And Aaron is down here at the camp with the Israelites. And if you buy Aaron's story, you take a bunch of gold earrings and gold jewelry, you throw it in the fire, and out jumps this golden calf. And here, Israel, is the God that brought you out of Egypt. How many people, how many Israelites came out and came through the Red Sea? Don't worry about the number, just give me the quantitative assessment of it. They all did, exactly. Every one of them walked across the Red Sea as though walking on dry ground. And yet, how long did it take the vast, vast, vast majority of them to turn away from the very God who had just so incredibly and miraculously delivered them? It didn't take long. And lest we get on our spiritual high horses, how many of us have seen the hand of God at work. And yet, how quick are we? Not necessarily in the, in the sense that we're gonna get to here, but we're quick to forget too, aren't we? So now, when Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. That term there, fall away, What's the sense that that gives? Is it intentional? Well, it's kind of so, almost, it sounds kind of passive. Sounds kind of passive, right? Okay, that's because it's really, this is, it's not a great interpretation of the term. This term here is, is, is actually, it is an intentional turning away from. It's almost, what other term can you think of to where you're going one way and then you intentionally turn away from that and go in a different direction? What does that sound like? Repentance, right? Except they're repenting of the wrong thing. They're repenting of having some profession of faith. And now they are turning and they are going the opposite direction. And why are they doing that? because they're being influenced. When you see the 
the slick TV preacher and his health and wealth prosperity gospel, he did not come up with that. That didn't originate from him. That originated from the devil himself. And so what Paul is making sure Timothy understands here is that you have two, you have two different things going on here. Again, we, we just went through this in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Our, flesh, our, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and the powers in the heavenly realm, right? And so here, the idea is, is that the, the deceit, the lies that are coming out that are contrary to the truth of the gospel have their origin in Satan. They have their origin in the demonic realm. They are, they are furthered by their minions and not the cute little yellow guys, right? These are the, the ones who are Satan's tool for putting this out and carrying this out inside the church. And the purpose is to lead people astray. That's the purpose for them. So again, and we've, we've talked about this extensively over the last weeks, about how doctrine, sound doctrine, is so crucial. If all of a sudden the doctrine starts to get tweaked, then if you do not understand God aright, and you don't understand his word aright, you cannot worship him aright, and frankly, you won't act right. Because what you believe dictates what you do. And vice versa, what you do indicates what you really believe to be true. And so this time is going to come. These people are going to turn away, and it's going to be coming through the, the, the means by means of the hypocrisy. And remember, what was hypocrisy? It's a transliterated word. Yeah, it's the one who wears the mask. It goes back to the Greek theater where you would have these faces on little sticks and the character that I happen to be playing at this moment is whoever's face I've got up next to mine. So you didn't have to just do tonal inflection. I can change the mask that I'm wearing right now so that you know I'm this other, pers this other personage. And so the idea here is that you have these men who are hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. And he actually carries on with that by this idea of liars. The word for liar literally means double-tongued. So you cannot take what this person says at face value. They, they say one thing, they do another. This idea here of paying attention, we need to hold, hold on to this thread because it's going to show up in the opposite usage. In, in the other way. This idea of paying attention is uh, nautically, it was used of a ship to hold a course. So again, this is intentional. This isn't I'm just going along with the, with the wind and, and wherever the waves are going, this is intentional. I have, a, I have a course laid in and that's the way that we're going. And so again, everything in here about this apostasy is intentional. This isn't just uh, cast, being cast adrift and, and floating away. These men 
are referred to here as being seared in their own conscience. The word here for seared is the word from which we get cauterize. And so it's the idea here, um, what, do you, what are you happening, where typically do you run into this word cauterize? I'm sorry, Danny? Wounds. Wounds. Surgery. You've opened something up and you've got a blood vessel that is, has been laid open and it's doing what blood vessels do. When they get laid open, the contents come out. And so you take something hot and you sear the blood vessel so that it closes and you're not bleeding anymore. That's that idea of, of heating something. The problem is when you heat something like that, what, what do you do to it? Yeah, you, you, you kill it. You make it insensitive. The idea here of the, of the, with the conscience, and we've talked about this before, because Paul has encouraged Timothy time and time again, and Titus as well, the importance of having a clear or a clean conscience. A conscience that is properly informed and, a proper, and it's properly calibrated and so that um, it's God's warning device for us when we are beginning to go astray. Their conscience has been seared. It's no longer responsive. It's no longer able to fulfill its God-given purpose. And so it is they don't have the ability to recognize. They're, they're no longer condemned in their mind. Alan. Are these false teachers? Yes. What makes them false teachers? Is it their seared conscience and their personal hypocrisy, or is it the content of their teaching? Well, I would say it's both. Uh, because one, both lead, the, the, the seared conscience is going to lead to false doctrine and the repeated um, uh, presentation of false doctrine just furtherizes, further destroys their conscience. Okay. <laughs> they all said yes. Okay, the question is, and, and this is relative to critical race theory and, and critical social justice, are the people who are putting this out and furthering this in the evangelical circles, are they false teachers? I think that you can have, well, actually, I know that you can have someone who is a believer who does not have properly tuned theology. Because every person in this room falls into that boat. None of us have perfect theology. Um, if, though, and the, and the problem with critical race theory is that if you carry that out to its logical conclusion, then you deny the gospel. That's the problem. And so if you have someone who is putting forth something 
that contradicts the gospel, that contradicts the, um, uh, in, in critical race theory, there's no remedy for racism. There's no remedy for your skin color. There are things that you just are because of things that have absolutely nothing to do with your control. There's only one person on the face of the planet who ever got to choose his family and where he was born and when, and that's Jesus. The rest of us, we had no control over that. And so critical race theory denies the gospel. It denies the power of the gospel. It denies the, um, the life-changing effect of the gospel. So if you are going to wholeheartedly adopt it, and that is what you're going to teach, yes, I think you cross the line over that and go into a false gospel and false teaching. Yep. And been apparently a solid pastor. And to think that he would go astray, you know, is kind of shocking. But when you look at what happened with the golden calf, and you look at Aaron talking about somebody who was solid yep. and went astray big time, mm -hmm. I guess it can happen. Well, and Nadab and Abihu, they were not spiritual lightweights. They were on the mountain. They, they, were, they were among the, the leaders of Israel. And so, now, okay, let's go here. Um, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. There's no one who can go back and rest on their quote-unquote spiritual laurels as it, to be able to, to stand when it comes to Christian witness. And there are many over the years who started well, who had incredible ministries. J.I. Packer wrote Knowing God. That's a pretty good book, which is a, an incredible understatement, right, if you've read it. And yet, at the end of life, he embraced the idea that uh, he was part of that evangelicals and Catholics together. That changes the nature of the gospel when you try to link uh, a religion that preaches works salvation with the gospel. Those are antithetical. They, you cannot put them together. They don't work together. So does that negate everything that he did earlier in life. Does all of a sudden now it make it to where the book that he wrote and others equally as good? Does that somehow now change that? Are those books tainted? Because in later years he held to something that in his earlier years he would not and did not. If you wanna talk about Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, we need to remember that um, our discipleship training core classes come from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. So do we throw out systematic theology in church history and the missions? Do we throw out all those classes because now they have a bent that at least some people have a bent 
and they're giving ear to the idea of critical race theory. How many degrees of separation do we need to practice here? You all understand the term degrees of separation? I think that would be, a good, so Alan's point is perhaps we should just, rather than label somebody a false teacher, identify exactly what the teaching is that is false. That's a good idea. Now, um, and it's also, I think, important for us, take things as far as, as we can. It is not my place to judge uh, some of these different people who are, falling under the influence of that as to, you know, are they saved? Are they children of God? Are they sons? That's not my place to make that determination. And so we need to be careful. We do need, and, and again, I think part of this is, how do you affect, because remember, when you encounter a false teacher, when Titus encountered a false teacher, did he just immediately cast them out? Was that the remedy for that? No, you do reject a factious man, but when? After a first and second warning, right? The idea being that you confront with the truth. If somebody won't listen to the truth, especially if they're in a position of leadership, if it's an issue of sin, you deal with that publicly. We're gonna run into that in Timothy. How do you deal with an elder? How do you deal with a pastor who is in uh, persistent sin. You don't sweep it under the rug. And so, and that has, and, and frankly, we've encountered the, these issues here. How do you deal with all of us? How do you deal with it when all of a sudden uh, a significant portion of your pastoral staff uh, will no longer adhere to the inerrancy of Scripture? Is, is turning away from the inerrancy of scripture, is that a problem? Okay, now every head in here ought to be going up and down, especially you folks that lived through that. We weren't here for that. That's what, 95, 96? Somewhere back there in the mid 90s. I don't any of that. And so again, remember how Paul is encouraging Timothy to deal with people, especially when they're on the other side of a um, theological fence. You do things directly, but you do it gently. The idea is you're trying to win the person you're talking to. So you don't come in, you know, you don't, the, the first option is not the, the, the atomic bomb and you blow everything up. Thanks, Alan, for that. Um, now, they're gonna deal with two issues here in, in Ephesus. He brings up the issues of forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Now, that is probably related to the onset of Gnosticism. Uh, there were two brands of Gnosticism. One was 
you have these things that are bad, and so uh, one was you completely shun them, you have nothing to do with them, and the other was you, you, you jump in with both feet. Um, and so you have different people. We've talked about a fellow by the name of Marcion before. Um, Marcion was one that would um, shun different things that he viewed as, um, as uh, he viewed them as things that shouldn't be enjoyed. Now, and he chose specifically marriage. You should not get married. Now, there's a problem with not getting married. Now, by the way, does Paul advocate not getting married? He does. For some. Not for all. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Where he talks about it would be best if you could live as I do. Because when you're married, you become distracted in your service to Christ. You cannot be wholehearted and dedicated solely to Christ because you need to be at least, you need to be committed to your wife. You have taken on that responsibility and therefore there's things that you need to be doing with that and you need to do them rightly. Yet at the same time, Paul is writing to Titus and to Timothy and talking about here's what you look for in the character of men for in leadership in the church and what's the first one that comes up? He's got to be the, you know, he's got to be a one woman man. What's that assume? Assumes he's married. In fact, it assumes he has children because he's to manage his household well. He's supposed to have his children under control with all dignity. And so the assumption is, is that the guy's got a family. And so this idea here of forbidding marriage because marriage, that's something that's, you know, it, that's something physical, and the physical realm is bad. Spirit is good, physical is bad. Same thing applies to foods. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna enjoy different kinds of food because that's bad. It's bad to enjoy something. That's, that's just wrong. We need to be, you know, we need to dress in the, in the burlap sacks and, uh, you know, have some, you know, extreme diet. Now, what's the problem? Now, if you read Genesis, you will recall that in a perfect world with no sin, God said there's something that's not good. What was it? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper that is suitable for him. Marriage was a gift from God. Those of us who are married understand that it really is. It is a great gift from God. And so the idea here, and, and then he goes in with, with foods, They advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, there were two things that were going on back here. You had the Gnostics who elevated knowledge and denigrated 
you know, pretty much everything else. You also had another issue that was going on in the first century that was relative to certain types of food, right? Because you had meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And for some, that is, that's a, a stumbling point. I can't eat this because it's gone through this particular pagan practice. And you've got others who say, ah, it's being sacrificed to something that's not a god at all. It's no big deal. But yet you've got this issue where some people's consciences are offended if they were to eat that meat sacrificed to idols. Paul's recommendation for the church, if you had both of those kinds of people in the church, what, was Paul's what, what did Paul say for people to do? Those of you who have the freedom, forego your freedom. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't cause your brother for whom Christ died to stumble in your conduct. Forgo your freedom. Those of you whose, uh, uh, whose conscience is offended, don't you hold these other people in contempt because they don't have the same trip that you do. Here, the idea is God made everything. When God made everything, it was good. The idea being that when something is placed before us at the dinner table, we should be grateful. God has provided that which I need. I need food to keep the motor burning in my body. God provides that and it's good. And therefore it results in what? It results in me expressing gratitude to God and praise to him because he has in fact provided not just gruel, he has provided a luxurious meal for me to be able to enjoy. It's the same thing with marriage. God has not sentenced me to being married. I've had occasion several times over the years now here to on Mother's Day, I get to read scripture. What is the most common passage read here on Mother's Day? Proverbs 31, right? And when I get to the end, many have done excellency, many have done excellently, but you excel them all. If I ever read that again, you can watch because I know the verse. And so I can look at my wife as I'm saying it. I haven't been sentenced. I'm grateful to God for the gift of my wife. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing many of you nodding your heads up and down. All right? It encourages praise. It encourages gratitude. When you turn away from those things and you label them as bad... You're calling something that God has declared to be good, you're calling it evil. And that's wrong on a number of fronts. Does that truly worship, does that bring honor to God in your heart? If something that he has created for your good, you in turn turn around and, and, and claim that it's somehow it is evil, it's something to be avoided. You're robbing God of praise and honor and thankfulness that he's due. And so again, it's not, um, you gotta be careful when you start eliminating things 
in the pur- for the purpose of supposed increased godliness, you need to be careful that in fact you're not turning around and accomplishing the exact opposite. All right, any questions there for on the on the section here for apostasy? Dear. All right, we're not going to make it today. All right. Now he's going to move into a personal section where, as, as, as Paul here, he's going to say, look, here is what a good servant looks like. So in verse 6, in pointing out these things, and the, these things, that's going to go back to the sound doctrine, and that's going to go back to refuting those who are not believing rightly. So that's going to include our, our uh, false teachers back up here in the first part of the chapter. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So let's stop there for a moment. When you talk about someone who is a good servant, the word there for servant is diakonia. And we get our word deacon from there, right? And so he's not talking about necessarily a pastor. He is talking about a a servant, He's not, he doesn't use doulos, which he often uses for us, right? This is, this is talking about, you know, this is linking back over to the idea of, as we are gifted, that we use those in the way that God has intended them to be used. So, um, not too long ago, Charles was preaching through 1 Peter 4, and that's where you see the, the most succinct um, definition and prescription for spiritual gifts. If you have a gift of speech, then you speak the oracles of God. If you have a gift of service, of diakonia, if you have that then, you serve in that way. You serve as though you're carrying that out for God. And so that's the idea here. So a good servant, number one, he's gonna confront error. He's pointing these, these, these things out to the brethren. So he's got his finger on the pulse of the culture. He's got his finger on, on the pulse of the culture, not just of the, the geographic area where they live. He's got his finger on the pulse of the culture inside his church. He's mindful of the things that people are following. He's mindful of the things that people are choosing to believe. And when those things are not accurate, when they are not in line with what God says, he confronts that. Again, not in an in-your-face, fire and brimstone way, but directly and yet gently. So again, making it to where he does not become the issue. Have you ever run into it to where... um, I'm going to choose to reject this message because of the messenger. The way I I remember having uh, a situation here uh, a number of years ago where somebody was rejecting admonition. And the reason for rejecting what made the admonition false in this person's perspective was that it was not delivered in the right way as this person identified what the right way should be. 
So because the messenger didn't do something in the fashion that this person thought it should have been done, that entirely negated the message. No. So what Timothy is, what Paul is telling Timothy, look, don't get in the way. Carry the mail, don't get in the way of the message. So he confronts error. You don't leave the sheep to figure out what the error is. You take care of that. This idea of pointing out is similar to the word for uh, counseling. When it talks about admonish, that word nutheteo literally means to put into the mind. This word has a similar meaning. It's to put into the mind. It's instructive, but it's not overbearing. And so the good servant, he confronts error. The good servant has a good spiritual diet. He doesn't rely on um, past meals. Now, uh, I can go for several days without eating. I have done that a couple of times. I've gone 10 days without eating. I did not waste away. I did not, you know, fall ill or any of those things. Can you do that indefinitely? No. That's called starvation, right? And it has physical effects. I cannot rely on meals that I have had in the past. I have my, my David had his 30 mighty men. I have come up with a list of, of Carolyn's 30 best recipes. And any one of them, oh, leftovers, bring them. I'll eat that four nights in a row with a smile on my face. You can't rely on things that are in the past and so the idea here, when, it, when you look in verse 6, constantly nourished, the, the constantly you'll see is in italics. It's provided, but it's implied in the, in the verb nourished. It's in the present active indicative, and so it's something that is going on, on, and on. And so again, um, there's focus here because I'm nourished on the words of the faith. We are to be nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Now, in, in times past here, when we have encountered the idea of sound doctrine in Titus, what was the, do you remember, what was the synonym for sound? We got the word hygienic from the word that was used in, that, in those cases for sound. So the idea of that doctrine is it's what? It's healthy. It's proper in that regard because it's actually, it's good for you. This is a different word. It's not, it's not the word for healthy. It is the word for good, kalos. So this is something, this is, this is truth that is intrinsically good. It's intrinsically excellent because it's intrinsically right. And so the minister has a consistent diet. And he is to avoid spiritual junk food. 
you hold on to the sound doctrine, you hold on to uh, the words of the faith, and you specifically turn away from other things. You turn away from the worldly fables. Now, um, this is a phrase that is not going to be politically correct here. And if you're a lady, I can understand why you might not be thrilled about Paul's choice of words here when, it, when he talks about avoid worldly fables that are only fit for old women. We have to, and here's one where we got to go back to when Paul is writing these things. In the first century, were women typically educated? They were not. They were not educated. And so, and they were not, um, their viewpoint was not given a lot of respect by men because of that. And so the idea being that there would be, an, uh, there would be a thought that if it is sophisticated enough and proper enough and high enough, then it could be considered by men who were the educated, the men who were the wise, the men who were sophisticated, who wouldn't fall prey to these other types of things that just, you know, they capture the old ladies and that's what they get together and they, and they just, they talk about these things, all right? Um, that, that is a, that was a cultural use. Timothy would have understood exactly what Paul was getting at here. The Ephesians would have understood very clearly what Paul was getting at here. Paul's not anti-woman. He's not anti-old women either. In fact, you're going to find that in the next chapter. When you have widows who are older, who is to take care of, of older widows who no longer can fend for themselves and who don't have family who can fend for them. The church takes that on. There is a danger, though, for women who no longer have the, the domestic duties that you have. Okay, you know, I look around in here and there are some younger moms in here who have lots of little kids. Now, I can remember those days when there were lots of little feet, you know, pitter-patter, running around in the house. And mom never gets a break. She's always about dealing with one thing or another. You know, there's the kids to take care of, there's the house to take care of, there's the husband to take care of. You know, everybody's looking to mom to make sure that mom is taking care of her business. Well, what happens to mom when all of a sudden there's no more kids? All of a sudden now, something in which she has poured out her life for, now all of a sudden she's got time. And what do you do with it? If you fall prey to the idea of, because I've got all this time now that used to be taken up in these other things, well, I'm going to get together with, you know, three other ladies that are now in the same place, and what ends up happening? You have hands that used to be busy, and now they're not. And if they don't get filled with something else, you can end up with all kinds of bad things happening, right? 
And so, again, um, that is something that needs to be watched for and it needs to um, be dealt with as it comes up. So, again, this idea of... uh, Timothy got the message. He knew exactly what Paul was getting at. So again, he's got a good spiritual diet. He avoids those things that are not going to help him. He's disciplined for godliness. Now, we have this this thing here now where he he looks in and he says, bodily discipline, on the other hand, don't get sucked into these things but discipline yourself for godliness. Don't discipline yourself just bodily by saying, I'm going to avoid these kinds of foods. I'm gonna fast three days a week in order to increase my holiness. Could that help? Could that be a useful practice? Maybe, perhaps. His point here is that bodily discipline is of limited benefit. It's of limited benefit, first and foremost, why? Why is bodily discipline only limited benefit? What's gonna happen to this body here at some point? It's gonna die. It's gonna go away. Do I carry this, oh boy am I happy for the answer to this question. Do I carry this body for eternity? No, I get a new model at some point. I'm looking forward to that new model. Maybe I'll be able to sing tenor in my new model. (laughs) You know, I have no idea what my new body's gonna be like, but I'm really looking forward to it. So the idea here, and and again, the word that's used here for discipline is the word from which we get gymnasium or gymnastics. The Greeks were very big on uh, physical fitness. They were really big on physical fitness. Where did the Olympic Games come from? Right? They came from Greece. And the idea there is that you would have... uh, young men in their late teens, and they would be very dedicated to physical fitness. You know, they had a very physical society, and so I'm going to be ripped, I'm going to be buff, I'm going to be all those things that, frankly, I am not, right? But that was a focus, and so everything got, got subjugated to that goal. When you have somebody who is physically training, what are they eating? They're typically, their diet, right, is brought into line so that it's helping them accomplish what it is they want to accomplish physically. Their time gets spent that way. Everything gets brought in there for that physical purpose. What Paul is saying is, you need to have that same drive, you need to have that same intensity, but rather than pursuing, you know, a, you know, 38-inch shoulders, you know, and a 46-inch chest and a, you know, 28-inch waist, Rather than pursue that, put that same effort into pursuing godliness. That has benefit for this life and the life to come. Therefore, that's worth really pursuing. So pursue godliness. You're going to forego some things in this life in order to obtain something for the next. 
it's not that bodily discipline is useless. Now, is there potentially an issue when you have somebody in a position of leadership who is very undisciplined in certain areas of life? Is that a potential problem? Why? Okay, it's not a good example. Self-control. Now, self-control, if I remember correctly, isn't that one of the character qualities that we're supposed to have in leadership? Self-control. That self now, now, here's the thing, and, and this, boy, I tell you what, I have, to, I have to look at this one. Is a person, can a person be self-controlled if they are controlled in one area of life but utterly uncontrolled in another area of life? Does that meet the, does that meet the definition of being self-controlled? Okay, I got a no over here. I got a hand over here. Okay, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so it's an indicator of, you know, it's a gauge for your spiritual well-being. What's the danger of the lack of self-control? Okay, so you can't compartmentize being controlled or not controlled. A person who is not self-controlled, what are they going to be susceptible to, especially in that area? They're going to be susceptible to temptation. And it's going to be, it's not going to be, it's going to be low-hanging fruit, frankly. Pardon me? Right, susceptible to deception. And so again, this idea here of, um, of control, of not being out of control in any of these different areas of life. All right, we are at two minutes past. So let's, any questions to this point? Alan. I'm sorry, verse seven. Yes. Guess what? ESV doesn't have it. Really? It's only one word in the Greek. Mm-hmm. And so apparently there's grave readings. Okay. So if you, if you know the women, you don't like that being ESV. <laughs> <laughs> it just it says everything the same except it leaves out as characterized by There's a couple of things that I really want to say there, but um, I, I will say this. Um, 
One of the pitfalls that exists, and again, this is one of these things where it tends to get attributed more to women than to men, is the issue of gossip. Now, I will say this about gossip. That has not been a problem here. Not for the last several years. Uh, I, I know in dealing with my own missus that, uh, you know, when y'all talk about things in your prayer groups, uh, they stay in your prayer groups. I can't get her to talk to me <laughs> about some things that, frankly, I kind of wish I would actually know about. And so, but the point being is that um, I know that we studied that issue. We, we had a very concerted effort on dealing with the issue of gossip, well, I don't know, what, five, six years ago? And uh, it seems to have worked because I just don't, I don't see that as being an issue here. And so ladies, we're grateful for that, by the way. Uh, that's good for body life when you don't have that issue. That's a cancer and we don't have that one. So I'm appreciative of, of you ladies uh, reining that in. Um, so let's pray. Father, you've put out a, a, a description here of what a good servant looks like that is very encompassing. It, 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 it really entails every area of life. And thank you for that. Thank you that you, again, you, you not only put the, the, the aim, the, the goal for us to strive for, you also give us the grace in order to be able to do it. You give us the spirit that, that sanctifies us, that, that transforms us into the image of your son. And so again, we are grateful to you. You accomplish all things according to your own will. You're working all of those things together for our good. And how, what a good God you are. The good gifts that you give us. The care that you give to us the care that you give us from, that you give yourself, the care that you give through uh, men in your church. Lord, we're grateful that you have provided all of these things and behind all of those things is you and your goodness, your wisdom. You have thought all of this up and you're the one who brings it to be. And we worship you. We acknowledge you are the only God. You're the only true God. There is none other. And then there's no one like you. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for making us your sons and your daughters. That you've made us joint heirs with the Lord Jesus who rightly deserves everything. We deserve nothing. And yet, look at all that you have showered upon us. May we worship you this morning in our hearts, in what we say, in what we do, in how we think. May we be so dominated by you today 
that people would look at us and see you. In Christ's name, amen.